Let us pray together. Lord God, your Bible would do us little good if it assumed a world of happy morality and wise justice. Today's story reminds us that it does not. We live in a world filled with sin, immorality, hatred, and injustice, and your word speaks to that exact world, this world, the world we live in. It shows us the consequences of our every choice to sin, most of all of our choice to reject Christ. And in so doing, it shows us Christ's glory and how deep our need of him is, how wondrous it is that you grant him to us on faith and repentance. Grant today, now, that his glory and our need both shine out brightly and powerfully here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what price does an individual, a people, a society pay for rejecting Christ? You've probably seen atheists on YouTube and elsewhere daring God to smite them right then and there. And when God doesn't strike them right then and there, they crow with victory, having proven that there is no God. Nothing happens, apparently. Well, Jesus came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. They did not know him, they did not repent, they did not own him as king. So Jesus pronounces God's judgment on them, but nothing else happens, right? Well, today's story, today's narrative is going to show us very differently. It's going to show us what happens when a person or a nation rejects Christ. So, let's start by just diving into this narrative, verses 1 through 12, and we'll look, Roman numeral 1, at the smaller picture, which is this narrative itself. We look at the smaller picture in which we see Herod's great folly. If Herod is the focus of this section, as we will see, which in itself is rather unexpected in a book that's about Jesus, that suddenly we have a section that doesn't seem to be about Jesus at all. It seems to be about Herod. So Roman numeral A, verses 1 and 2, show us how Herod hears and errs, E-R-R-S. He hears and errs. Let me read it to you. At that point, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Immerser. He himself was raised from the dead, and on account of this, these acts of power are at work in him. Well, let's look at what Herod hears. Uh, Matthew writes, at that point, and you, you might skip those words quickly because they seem like colorless, insignificant words, but they aren't. They're actually very significant. This is the third and final time Matthew uses this exact phrase. And let's remind ourselves of how he uses it. Look back at 11.25. Matthew 11.25. Now, in chapter 10, we'd had the, the missionaries sent out preaching and doing wonders, preaching the uh, nearness of the kingdom of God in Jesus and calling people to repent. And when they came back, Jesus pronounced woe on these cities in which his great miracles had been done because they did not repent. And so we read in Matthew 11.25, at that time, it's the exact same Greek phrase, enikeno to kairo. 
At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Now, we're supposed to take that to remind us what had just happened and to tell us that it was at that time in the face of this massive rejection, the way Jesus responds to it is not to lament, not to introspect, not to tell his father that the work had failed, but he turns to his father and praises him, praises him equally that the people hadn't repented because he had hidden these things from their eyes, while at the same time he revealed them to the eyes of children, of his children, of his people. So that reminds us, the, the, the function of this phrase is to make us plug in the backdrop and say at that very time the way Jesus responded in the face of all this rejection is to praise God and then to make an invitation afresh to people to come to him for rest. That's the first time of three. The second time is right next door. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pluck the heads of grain and eat. So again, Matthew calls to us the backdrop of the response of people in chapter 11, that there had been questioning on the, on the part of John the Baptist. And there had been mounting rejection by the cities and by the people and challenges by the religious ruler. And it's at that time that he goes out and has these two Sabbath encounters, which just ramp up the cycles of rejection that we are reading about in chapters 11 and 12. At that time, this is the action Jesus took. And so likewise, when we read in chapter 13, uh, sorry, 14 verse 1, that Matthew says at that point, at that time, he wants us to think of the backdrop of what's been going on. And what is that backdrop? Well, it's chapter 13, which was the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom, which Jesus told why. Because the nation had rejected him. Because the leaders had committed the baptism, I'm sorry, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because in the face of his miracles, the cities had not repented. In the face of his miracles, the leaders had said, oh, well, he just does that by the power of Satan, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, this is the end of the offering of the kingdom to the nation. That's not going to be the tenor of his preaching anymore. In fact, now is going to come a state in God's kingdom program that the Old Testament had not predicted specifically. It's a mystery that Jesus now tells that there will be a time between the king's first coming and rejection and his return in the setting up of the kingdom. And that time is the time of these mysteries of the kingdom. And he describes that in these eight parables that we just finished studying together. So it's at that time, at that point, at that moment, against that backdrop, that Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Now I'm going to show you more about why that's significant just a bit later. So stay with me. Keep your arms and your legs inside the car at all times. Nobody will be hurt, I promise. I am a professional, or at least I'm, a, I'm trained. So at that point, Herod, now that's, this is interesting in itself. You wouldn't think so, but it is, because it's Matthew's device. He begins each of three sections here with Herod. Verse 1, at that point, Herod heard. Verse 2, for Herod seized John and bound him. So the first section is verses 1 and 2. The second section is verses 3 through 5. And then the last section, he says Herod twice in verse 6. But when Herod's birthday had come, Herodias' daughter pleased Herod. 
So that's how Matthew shows us the three sections in which he's written this narrative in which Herod takes the lead. His gospel's been about Jesus, but now here's a little section where Herod takes the lead. Why is that? We're going to look at that together. Is this book about Herod or is it about Jesus? Hang on, it's really both. And Herod actually tells us about Jesus in a roundabout way. So Herod, here's the report about Jesus. And and what is this report about Jesus that he's hearing? Well, it's the same thing that the folks in Nazareth had been hearing that we saw in the last section at the end of chapter 13. What was that? They saw and heard this wisdom and these acts of power, these miracles. It was the same issue. The miracles had provoked, if you will, the leaders in rejecting what they were really saying to say Jesus was working by the power of Satan. The miracles puzzled the people in Nazareth, and they still dismissed them by saying, well, he's just one of us. Can't be anything special. We know his, his father, his mother, his brothers and sisters, so it can't be saying that he's anything particularly special. It can't be. We know it can't be. And so now here, Herod hears about the same thing. But like the cities who didn't listen to the message of the miracles... Like the leaders who perverted the message of the miracles, like the townspeople who ignored the message of the miracles, Herod will bobble and completely misunderstand the message of the miracles. He hears the report about Jesus. So you see, Matthew wants us to connect these accounts. Here's another case of somebody knowing about Jesus' miracles and completely bobbling what they mean. So let's think together about what Herod concludes He knows these miracles are being done. What does he say that they mean? Verse 2, this is John the Immerser. He himself was raised from the dead, and on account of this, these acts of power are at work in him. John the Immerser, he was called the Immerser, or the, the, the Immersionist, because unlike the Jews who had baptisms in which people immersed themselves, John immersed others. So he got that name, John the Immerser. <clears throat> well... Herod says that's him. And I don't think we should think that he has any lofty understanding of the resurrection. He may be thinking of reincarnation. Remember later Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And one of the things that people say is what? John the Baptist. Is that resurrection or is that reincarnation? They both existed at the same time. That's weird. And I don't think we should look to Herod for having any any very fancy, refined theology. He's superstitious, he's guilt-ridden, and he's a mess, as we're going to see in this section, which describes a whole lot of people today, though they would never say it of themselves. Superstitious, guilt-ridden, and a mess. So let's look at Herod's mess. He says, this is Jesus. Uh, This Jesus is, is John the Baptist raised from the dead, and that's why. So he's a supernatural figure to Herod of some sort and specifically John the Baptist. And so that's why there's mighty supernatural powers. That, that word translated at work is usually used of some sort of supernatural working. And so he sees a supernatural work in what, uh, what Jesus is doing. I, I just want to make a, a, an aside here, and, and I will never tire of pointing this out to you because of the gullibility of so many professed Christians today, and I don't want that to be true of any of you or anybody I can ever help. I just want you to notice that whether it's the religious leaders or whether it's Herod, they see Jesus' miracles, and what's, what's the one thing that none of them ever says about his miracles? 
they're not real. But they didn't happen. He's not really doing miracles. He's not really doing anything remarkable. That's the one thing that none of them say. What's the one thing that you don't hear about all of the professed miracles from after the first century to today, and especially in the last hundred years when the charismatic movement was invented? What does nobody say about them? Well, their miracles can't be denied. Nobody. You don't read this in any paper, any, any news report, and you might say, well, but they, they hate Christians, so they wouldn't report it. What, you think they hate Christians more than the Pharisees hated Jesus? More than Herod hated John? No. But they had to report it because it was happening. They had to acknowledge it. If those kind of miracles were happening today, they would have to report them. They, could not, they would be in broad daylight, undeniable in front of everybody, just like the biblical miracles. So note that. And you'll often hear charismatics take the verse out of context. Greater works than these you will do, Jesus says. And so they say that means greater works. We'll be doing greater miracles than Jesus. Well, dude, you've had 100 years to do one. You don't have one yet. How much longer do you expect us to wait before we start thinking that you're full of baloney in what you're saying? And it is. It's full of baloney. I just warn you. I just ask you, look at Jesus' miracles. Nobody, they had to look to some bizarre explanation, but the one thing they couldn't do is say he wasn't doing miracles. So Herod's explanation is, well, he's got to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's his conclusion. That's Herod's conclusion. They actually, what, actually they point to Jesus' divine nature and his kingly power. That's what they really are. They really testify to who he is and what he was in God's plan. But he says, no, they are uh, the works of uh, John the Baptist risen from the dead in some way. So the leaders concluded it was Satan. Wrong. The Nazarenes concluded it couldn't be anything special. Wrong. John the ba- I'm sorry, Herod concluded it had to be a reincarnate John. And again, wrong. What do we remember as we look at this spectacle of, of Herod and what he's doing, how he responds to Jesus' miracles? Well, from Jesus, one thing we remember is what, what he said in chapter 11 when the cities didn't repent. What did he say? I praise you, Heavenly Father, that you've hidden these things. They didn't repent because God hid these things from them. As he will say in chapter 13, to you it has been given to know know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To them it's not been given. They don't know because God hasn't given it to them. And he says, and those who don't have from them will be taken away what they do have. And we see that playing out in Herod right there. And, And the townspeople and the leaders left to themselves, they pursue only error and lies. And that's 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 why Jesus' miraculous powers are misunderstood and their testimony is rejected and not heard. And so what Matthew is showing us here, and and here is the point I said I'd come back to. What is he doing when he shows in chapter 11 and 12 these cycles of rejection climaxing in the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And then chapter 13 is a whole chapter about this period of time that the church is placed in the middle of, uh, uh, during the, which the mysteries of the kingdom are worked out. And why does he say at that time, and then tell us a story about Herod. And, and you, you say, well, I, yes, it's very weird because the first verse of the gospel says it's about Jesus, and yet here's a section that isn't about Jesus at all. Jesus' name barely occurs. Jesus' person isn't even in this section. What's that about? Well, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I'd like to tell you what I think it's about. 
I think that the presence of Jesus is loudest here because of his absence. What am I saying? I think what Matthew is doing here is he's shown his nation's cyclical and, and climaxing rejection of Jesus, and, and then he says about what's going to happen during this age, and then he says, now here's a little snapshot of what you get when you reject Jesus. Here's what you get when you reject that king. You get this kind of king. This is who's your king if you reject Jesus. Now I'll reveal to you what I was very tempted to make the title of this sermon, and I'm, I'm still not sure I shouldn't have. I was tempted to title this sermon, Play Stupid Games. I couldn't quite hear you. That's right. Play Stupid Games, Win Stupid Prizes. And that is the subtitle of the sermon at any rate. Because this is exactly what he's showing us, what Matthew's showing us. You play the stupid game of rejecting God's testimony to his son and his gracious invitation to come to him. Here's the stupid prizes that we win. There's not going to be a vacuum. People like this are going to step into that power vacuum. And actually, we're to see that we are people like that ourselves. If we're left to our own and we close our eyes to God's revelation and his word, this is the same direction that we go into. Uh, this is what Matthew is showing us. Jesus looms large here by his absence. And if Jesus is not king, then this is where things go, where Herod goes. So now in verses 3 through 12, Matthew brings a flashback in which we see Herod seizes and stalls. He seizes, S-E-I-Z-E-S, and stalls, S-T-A-L-L-S. So I'll just read it to you. For Herod, there again, signaling the new section, Herod begins the verse. For Herod seized John and bound him. This is why John the Baptist is on his brain. Matthew's flashing back to explain that. Herod seized John and bound him and put him away in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of Philip, his brother. For John kept saying to him, it is not allowable for you to have her. And though wishing to kill him, he was afraid of the crowd because they were viewing him as a prophet. So first let me explain who Herod is. There are a lot of Herods. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain that much to, to begin with. There are a lot of Herods. Their story is very interesting, very complex, pretty confusing, pretty hard to follow. Which, which Herod are we talking about here? We've already had two Herods. This is the second Herod. The Herod in chapter 2 who kills the babies in Bethlehem is Herod the Great. The Herod we're looking at here is his son, Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S, Herod Antipas. So who's Herod Antipas? He ruled from about 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., so he had a good long rule. He's the son of Herod the Great, who is an Edomite. He was the son of this Edomite king by a Samaritan mother. So was he a Jew? He was not a Jew, but he ruled amid the Jews. He was a tetrarch. What does that mean? Uh, strictly, it means he rules a fourth of the area, but it's not mathematically that. He, he ruled the non-contiguous areas of Galilee to the north and Perea to the south by the, around the Dead Sea. Those were his areas. In other words, the areas where Jesus spent much of his ministry. That was in the, in the turf, if you will, of Herod Antipas. So who's this Herodias? Is she like a female Herod? No, it's just another variation on that name. There's a lot of Herods. And there's, I think, at least a couple of Herodias, as a matter of fact. Uh, I think she's the second, I believe. But Herodias 
was uh, also not Jewish. She was Nabataean. Nabatea is an area that we would think of as being uh, South Jordan, and its big city is, is Petra. Not the Christian rock band Petra, but the city Petra. Now I know how old some of you are. So um, she was a Nabataean, also not Jewish. She, now here it really gets complicated. What was his relation to Herod the Great? His son. Did she have a relation to Herod the Great? Yes, she was his granddaughter. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Herodias is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And she had married her uncle, Philip, who was called Herod Philip. She married her uncle. Not this Herod, but but someone named Philip. And this Philip was Antipas' half-brother. You with me? We're almost done with the hard part. <laughs> so she married, she married his brother for all intents and purposes. And uh, that made her both Antipas's niece and the wife of his brother. So now there's a sordid little, little snarl for you, isn't there? And so here Herod goes to, Herod is also married himself, not to Herodias. Uh, and Herodias also doesn't mean Mrs. Herod. Herod was married to a a Nabataean, as I said, and he went to Rome and he saw Herodias and he fell in lust with her and had to have her. So she fell in lust back with him, I guess, and they made a little plan by which he dismissed his wife, which became a political bombshell. He'd He'd married her for political reasons, and so the dismissal had political implications, and her father, Aretas IV, had war against Herod, and he had to be bailed out by Rome. But that's another story. So he dismissed his wife, and Herodias left her husband, which was also a no-no at that time. And the two of them shacked up together and, and said that they were married. So you've got two wrong divorces, but the real issue here, and more to the point, is that Herod was married to his brother's wife. His brother's still alive, and his brother had a child whose name was Salome who we meet in this story also. So he was not a case of levirate marriage where he was left seedless and Herod should marry his widow. She wasn't a widow. He was alive. And he wasn't seedless. He had a child. So this was an incestuous marriage. That's a very important point. This was reviewed as an incestuous marriage, a marriage within relation that is too close uh, so Leviticus 19:16 said, "You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother, of your brother's wife. That is your brother's nakedness. So you don't marry your brother's wife. Don't have sex with your brother's wife." Leviticus 20:21, 20, "If there's a man who takes his brother's wife, it is an impure act. He's uncovered his brother's nakedness." So that makes this an unredeemable union, a union that itself is not proper. There is no configuration in which that union can be made a proper union. It, by its nature, is irredeemable. So how did John respond? What do we read here? Verse uh, 4, For John kept saying to him, It is not allowable for you to have her. Oh, now think about that a lot. Think deeply about that with me. For one thing, we see he kept saying to her. He kept saying to him. That is, he said it over and over and over again. So this week's sermon is, Herod can't have his brother's wife. This week's sermon is, 
Herod can't have his brother's wife. Today we'll be dwelling on Herod can't have his brother's wife. He said it over and over again about the person in power in the area in which he was operating. Now I'd like to just think about this in in light of winsomeness. Some of you will immediately know what I'm talking about. Some of you won't. Our top men today and our, our evangelical celebrities are telling us the most important thing for us is to be winsome. We want our testimony to be winsome. We don't want to make anybody mad. We don't want to make anyone angry at us. We, because it just it sends them away from Christ. So you can't talk about homosexuality as a sin or transvesticism or transsexualism as a sin. You can't talk about sin as a sin, really, because it makes people mad to hear that. And it hurts their feelings. And that becomes their reason for not becoming Christians. Like if we don't say it's a sin, they'll become Christians. And what would it be to be a Christian if you're embracing that sin? But I digress. So their, their thing is, well, you've got to be a, at all costs winsome. You've got to be winsome. You've got to be the sort of person they like to hear who doesn't say offensive things. And so go to the homosexual weddings and, and call this man her if he wants to be called her. And, and just the most important thing is to be winsome. Well, on a winsomeness scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being just the delightful pink-cheeked, embodiment of winsomeness, one to ten, how would you rate John here? About a 0.0. It was not winsome. In fact, it, was, it made Herod and Herodias both so mad, they killed him. How mad's that? Not winsome. But he's a prophet of God. And Jesus holds him up and says, you want to see a leader? Look at this guy. Among men born, uh, uh, children of, of women, Nobody's greater than John. And this is what he does. He bears a witness that is loud, clear, resolute, unapologetic, and lined up with God's word. God does not say you can have this union. You may not have this union. Well, how does that bear on us? Does it tell us to be jerks? Nope. No, there's no license to be a jerk. There's no license to go out and start fights for the joy of starting fights. Some people do like to fight. You know, some people live by the motto, hey, let's you and him fight. <laughs> they, they love a good fight, and this is not what we're seeing here. It was something that he simply had to say to, to be faithful. Now, so let's, let's apply this here. What are some situations that are facing us today? Well, you're invited to a, 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 a wedding of two men. How do you respond? You're introduced to two women, and you're told that this is Betty and her wife. How do you respond? What do you say about that? Well, if John's our guide, you will tell God's truth because you can't lie and honor God, but also you can't lie and serve that other person in love. Is it loving to lie to people? It is not loving to lie to people. Is it loving to tell people when they're doing something that will destroy them forever without hope that it's okay and you accept it? Now, the only motivations for that can be that we're just completely messed up and don't even know the truth, or that we care more about being liked than we care about if somebody goes to hell or not. Or we care more about being liked and keeping our job, keeping our friends, than we care about honoring God and being faithful to God. Because this is at the nexus of those two things. That when I accept a homosexual union as being legitimate marriage, I'm being unfaithful to God who says it never can be, and unfaithful to those people who need to hear that they need salvation and redemption. 
They don't need uh, acceptance and affirmation. They need repentance and forgiveness. Can I get an amen? And who's going to be faithful enough and loving enough to risk the price of telling the truth to that person? Well, John is the example here. He certainly told the truth, and he certainly paid the price for it. And if you were to ask him today, do you think he would say that he regretted doing that? No, he would not. If we were even allowed into his neighborhood, no, he would not say that he was regretful over what he did. So, John is the picture of someone who is both faithful and loving. He does what God would have him do and what Herod and Herodias don't want to hear, but most need to hear. Now, they need to hear it and its truth. Do they embrace it? They do not. Matthew Henry very well said, faithful faithful reproofs, if they do not profit, usually provoke. In other words, if somebody doesn't accept your faithful reproof, he'll probably be mad at you. And indeed, that's the case right here. But John was taking to heart what Jesus had said in chapter 10. What had Jesus said to the missionaries he sent out? He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And so you see John living that very truth. He was not afraid of Herod. He was more fearful of God. He he feared and revered and respected God and was a faithful witness. Not so much winsome, but he was trying not to be well-liked, but to be faithful. Faithful to God and faithful to Herod and Herodias. So we've got to think deeply about this and we've got to count the cost. cost. Today, it it might just cost us our job. It might very well cost us a relative or a dear friend if we say God's truth. And we might face this same choice. And remember the choice that God calls us to, the choice Christ calls us to, the, the choice that John made. Faithful to God, faithful to the person. And if the person won't accept it, well then, that's between them and God. That's between them and God. But we must fear God and not man. And so did John. What a witness we'd have if we feared God more than we feared men. What a clear witness the church would have in this day when the world is tearing itself and it's going absolutely barking, dribbling, drooling, ankle-bitingly mad. And the, the church could speak a clear word of testimony, but we're so afraid of being disliked and deplatformed that we don't dare. But what, what are we? What are we called for? What more might provoke Christ to remove our lampstand than refusing to be a faithful witness when it's so desperately needed? Well, the sermon's only partway done, so hang with me here. So John, uh, Herod here, is, is, he's frozen. He stalls out. He's in a dither. He hated John. He hated what he said. But at the same time, he feared him and kind of respected him. And he heard what he said. But he couldn't let him out there saying that. But he wasn't really willing to kill him. And he was afraid of the crowd's opinion. So so he's stuck. He's just stuck. He doesn't know what to do. And his his helpmeet Herodias is going to solve that problem for him. Oh, but what a solution. What a solution. Letter C, John swears and slays. John swears and slays. 
S-W-E-A-R-S and S-L-A-Y-S, swears and slays. But when Herod's birthday celebration had come, Herodias' daughter danced in their midst and pleased Herod. Uh, Here's Herod two times, signaling this is the last and third section. It's Herod's birthday, and just uh, let me pause and say, birthdays were not celebrated among the Jews. They didn't have birthday parties, but the pagans did, the Greeks and the Romans did. I've got nothing. I I love birthday parties. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying the Jews didn't, and so in doing this, he wasn't being Jewish. He was being more Greek and more Roman, so that right there is an odd thing in the area. So his birthday celebration had come, and Herodias' daughter, just note what she's called. Her name is Salome, but, but Matthew doesn't give her her name. He calls her Herodias' daughter danced in their midst and pleased Herod, because of which, with an oath, he promised, Matthew emphasizes that, with an oath he promised to give her whatever she might ask. Oh boy, but he promises it. But she prompted by her mother, give me, she says, here upon a platter the head of John the Immerser. And the king, notice he calls him king in that verse, The king, though saddened, yet on account of the oaths and those reclining at table with him, ordered it to be given to her. And sending men, he beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought upon a platter and was given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came up and took his corpse and buried him, and they came and reported to Jesus. Well, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that John was imprisoned in the fortress Machairus, down by the, overlooking the, the Dead Sea. It was a heavily fortified fortress, and the ruins still stand today. It had, uh, it had a, a dungeon, and it also had um, um, places to dine and bathhouses. So, Herod, uh, Herod's having a birthday party, and the other Gospels tell us he had all the top people, all the celebrities of the area, all the great people and the powerful people, so it'd be all men in that area. He had them all to his party, and you know what would go on at parties like that. They wouldn't be playing truth or dare. They'd be getting drunk and reveling and having a rowdy time. And so this girl comes in, and, and dances and so pleases him that he promises to give her anything and she asks for the head of John the Baptist. Now, he had no right to make that promise in the first place. You don't have a right to promise to do something evil. Just right by there, it's an invalid, it's an oath to break. It's not an oath to be carried out, but it's an oath to be repented of. But he makes this promise and, and he doesn't really want to do it but all these people saw him made it, make it, and his wife would know that he made it, and the girl's standing right there. And so, as, as Spurgeon says, such fear of being thought weak proved that he was weak indeed. And so he felt that he had to keep this promise. Now, now notice that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, just really think about that. <laughs> so, so he promises... He who's, who's married to, to his brother's wife, incestuously, he promises to give her whatever, and she says, well, then basically chop the head off this righteous man who's saying things we hate. And he says, I don't really want to, but you know, I did give my word, and I'm a man of honor. I mean, really think about that. He, 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 he didn't keep his marital oath, whatever it was at that time, but he had to keep his promise and kill this righteous man. He couldn't break that oath. 
murdering somebody, that's all right. But breaking his promise with all those people watching? No. See, now, this tells us something about how he saw himself. Well, for one thing, it tells us how much these people around him meant to him. Well, for another thing, it tells us what kind of people they are, you know. I mean, what kind of friends do you have if your friends say to you, well, you know, you did promise to murder him, so, you know, you're not going to go back on your promise, are you? Well, what kind of friends are those in the first place? But, but he's, he, on account of his oaths, Matthew says, in other words, his oaths were really important to him because he was an honorable man in his eyes. Now, take this lesson, dear friend. You you may write this down and underline it. Every villain is the hero of his own story. Every villain is the hero of his own story. And that's true whether it's Herod, Antipas, whether it's Herod the Great, whether it's Adolf Hitler, whether it's uh, Idi Amin or bin Laden, or whether it's the husband who makes life hell for his wife, or the wife who emasculates and makes life hell for her husband, or the, the uh, child who makes life hell for his parents by rebellion and, and surliness, or the parents who make life hell for their children by abuse, or on and on and on. Whatever level, whether petty or, na- or national, every villain is the hero of his own story. And Herod looks in the mirror and he sees an honorable man, the sort of man who'd keep his word even if it's difficult even if it's really, really wicked. And notice another very important message. A lesson here. Uh, Verse 9, and the king, what does it say? The king though, what's that word? Though saddened. He's sad. But is he repentant? No. He goes ahead and does it. Sadness is not repentance. Feeling guilty is not repentance. A lot of sad people are going to hell. They're sad, but they're not willing to turn from their sin to Christ. He's sad, but he's not willing to turn from his sin. And, and ironically, listen to the testimony of John the Baptist, John the Immerser. He'd much rather kill him than listen to him. Now here's another thing to notice. I said I, I made note of as we went on, but note how Matthew speaks of Salome. Matthew is obviously very horrified at her role here. And you get that from the fact that, well, let's start here. What does he call her? He calls her a girl. He calls her a girl. Uh, Verse 11. Head was brought on a platter and was given to the girl. Matthew's only used that word one other time, a girl. It was the girl that Jesus raised from the dead, who we learned from the Gospel of Mark, was 12 years old. So about how old is this girl dancing and, and exciting Herod? She's around 12, 12 to 14 years old. She's just a, just a child. She's just a child. So he points out she's a girl. And what does he call her? He calls her Herodias' daughter in verse 6 and then refers to her mother in verse 8. And again, verse 11, the girl brought it to her mother. And what's the message we get there? Well, let's think more about the situation. Usually men dance, not women. And if women danced, it was lurid. It was seductive. It was sensual. It would be like a ballet with revealing clothes. But she's 12 years old, 13, 14 years old, in a room full of men. How do you know it's a room full of men? Well, for one thing, the, the power brokers of the area would have been men. And for another thing, Mark tells us that when she wants to get her brother, mother's advice, what does she have to do? She has to go out to her mother. 
Her mother's not even in the room with her. But her mother is in the room with her because her mother tells her what to do. So this is a case of uh, a horrifying use of this child. And Matthew registers his horror at it and how the child is seen by uh, Antipas, presumably she pleased him. And in the context, she just probably could let your imagination roam a bit. He's not a very moral man as we safe in saying. So he's so intoxicated with her, and he's so intoxicated that he makes this, this oath to her, and he's seeing her as an object. Who else is seeing her as an object, though? Her mother, who's using her as a tool. Her mother is using her own child to seduce him into getting this man killed who bothers her so much, who she so hates. But the child is sexualized and used. Boy, that's not relevant at all, is it? Nothing like that going on today, right? You say that if you live under a rock. If you're aware of what's happening in classrooms and libraries and countless venues and in the advertising world, oh no, that's exactly what's going on today. The sexualization and use of children and the corruption of the noble calling to be a mother. She's not a Proverbs 31 woman, okay? She is not, is she? No, she's not. Nor is a, nor is a mother who takes her child into a, an abortion clinic to have it killed. But that's motherhood today. That's motherhood when we reject Christ. This is womanhood when we reject Christ. Herod is rulership and authority when we reject Christ. That's what this picture is, you see. That's what we're seeing going on here. We're seeing an expose of what happens when a society, a nation, a people, or an individual rejects Christ. There's not a vacuum. This is what happens. So let's turn then. Let's see, is there anything particular on the... On the um, be, uh, obviously, Herod did not hold a trial, did he? He had no trial at all. What was John being executed for? Because he promised. No crime. And uh, he was beheaded. That's not the Jewish way of doing it. So it wasn't really Roman law. It wasn't really Jewish law. It was simply him flexing the power of his office and silencing this man. And so in Sunday school, we, we looked at the first Christian martyr. Here we look at the last Jewish martyr. And both the same reason. They were speaking the word of God. And the powerful did not want to hear it. So they had to shut him up. And so John is shut up in this way. And what a way to end his life, you think. What a way to end his life. Not glorious, not spectacular at all. And yet, he flamed out with faithfulness. And that was what God willed for his ministry to be. And what God willed for his end to be. And he stands as a witness today. People have forgotten Herod Antipas, but they remember what John the Baptist said. And what he did. And what Herod did to him. So then verse 12 is kind of a hinge verse between this flashback and what happens next, which we'll get into next week, Lord willing. So now let's step back then and look at the bigger picture that Matthew paints for us here and the point he wants to make. Roman numeral 2, the bigger picture, man's great folly. We've seen Herod's folly. Now let's consider man's great folly. And again, I just remind you of at that point in verse 1, the larger backdrop is Israel's rejection of Christ as king. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So you reject the rule of God, and this is the rule you get. Israel or an individual, Christ is replaced by a wicked, weak, incompetent ruler. 
as a judgment. And I'd say that we all get that when we reject Christ, a weak, incompetent ruler ourselves. So let's look letter A then at the king in man's kingdom, because I did title it A Tale of Two Kings. So let's look at the king in man's kingdom, and that's what Herod is. Herod the Tetrarch, who by the way wasn't actually a king. That was not his title. He may have popularly been called one. He wanted to be one. Later he would ask Caligula to give him that title, and Caligula would say, "Mm, no. So he never got to be formally and officially a king ended up being uh, kicked out, actually. But um, he was a self-styled king, and Matthew ironically calls him a king when he's, de- when he's depicting just how weak he is, just how really weak, verse 9. And the king, though saddened, yet on account of the oaths and those reclining at table. What, what king? What power? He was a king, but he was ruled by many forces. Like what? What ruled Herod? Well, for one thing, superstitious guilt and fear ruled him. Number one, superstitious fear and guilt. What does Proverbs 28.1 say? The wicked flee when there is no one pursuing, but the righteous are as secure as a lion. What, what, what weapons did John the Baptist bring against him? The word of God. That was all. That was too much for Herod. The wicked flee, and Herod lived in guilt, and John the Immerser lived rent-free in his skull, so much so that when he hears of a wonder worker, he says, oh, that's John! It's John! That tells us how haunted he was with guilt, but not guilt of which he repented. Uh, He was cowed by superstitious fear and guilt. Secondly, he was cowed by his wife, Herodias. This is all her wicked plan. She all, all these were her machinations as to how to turn him to do what she knew had to be done, but he didn't have the guts to do, have to kill John the Baptist. And she thought of a real slick way of getting him to do that. Saw her opportunity and jumped on it, and he was ruled by that. He couldn't say no to that. Thirdly, he was ruled by the crowd. Verse 5. So he was ruled by his guilt. Verse 2 superstitious fear and guilt. He's ruled by Herodias, verses 3 and 8. He's ruled by the crowd, verse 5. Though he wished to kill him himself, he was afraid of the crowd because they saw him as a prophet. Well, he was a prophet, but Herod didn't want to listen to him. So he was afraid of them. Fourth, he was, he, he was under the control of his stepdaughter, verse 6, who so delighted him that he made a promise that she actually took him to the wall with and he didn't have the moral strength to say, well, I can't keep that. Not one I can't keep. And finally, he was under the control of his peers. Verse 9, like, like I said, what kind of friends must these have been? Account of those reclining at table with him. Boy, they'd seen him make oath after oath after oath. I absolutely will do anything you ask, he says. And he just... Well, he's too embarrassed to say no when she says this in front of all of them. So he's really under all of their power. But, but notice too here that in him, this king that they have now because they rejected Jesus. No, no, we can't have Jesus. But now this is their king. And he, well, what, is the, what is the height of the power God gives to human government? What is, what is the symbol of the, the height of the power he gives to government? The sword. Romans 13, that Roman government, I mean, human government carries the sword by God's ordination, and he uses that sword 
in this corrupt of a way. No justice, simple pettiness and guilt and wickedness, but he uses it. He exercises that power on a girl's whim, on his wife's spite, and his own weakness. And that's the kingdom of man. That's a, that's a king in the kingdom of man. And soon these Jewish crowds who had rejected Christ will be shouting what? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And this is what they get. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. But now consider by the starkest contrast the king of God's kingdom. You could just say you could have had. <laughs> this could have been your king. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 where we started the service. We're going to spend a little time in Isaiah so it's worth turning there. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll just touch on, on verses 9 and 6. We know these words from Christmas time but they are uh, always relevant. A child and a son is born and given to us. Notice the government will rest on his shoulders. Let me just take you back when I was explaining what's the, what, what's the significance of the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field. And I said it's Jesus and the kingdom because Jesus is the king of the kingdom. You, you can't separate the two. You don't have the kingdom without Jesus. But if you have Jesus, you have the kingdom. Well, here we see the government will rest on his shoulder. He is the kingdom. The state is him. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it. Look, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this Herod was just one of a series of Herods. There'd been Herods. There'd be Herods. They all have little wicked rules that would be forgotten soon. But Jesus' kingdom is going to be forever. And while Herod's kingdom and his father's kingdom were characterized by wickedness and pettiness and the abuse of power, Jesus' kingdom will be justice and righteousness. Look even more at chapter 11. Just a couple of pages on speaking of the same child. Isaiah says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Not come and go like with the judges, but the Spirit will rest on him. The Spirit of all these things that you can't see at all in Herod, or any kingdom of man, king. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. So unlike Herod and the kings of the kingdom of man, his judgment will not be superficial or based on faulty or, or partial evidence. But it will be just. It will be in accord with God's wisdom. He'll act with wisdom because the spirit of Yahweh dwells on him and he has the very wisdom of God, the very understanding of God, the very righteousness and justice of God. And so this uh, works out in the, in the actual transformation of nature and of kingdoms. Verse 4, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. Herod is swayed by the power brokers of his area. That will mean nothing to King Messiah. Only God is, is the care, the matter, the business of King Messiah. Uh, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will put the wicked to death. And what is, John, what is Herod doing here? 
putting the righteous to death. And so we see it in our own government. We see them trying and sometimes succeeding. We see more and more tries. You just wonder how long the lid can be kept on by such a corrupt culture. They just shut Christians up, shut Christians up, deplatform, silence, penalize, fire. It becomes harder and harder to say unpopular God things. But here, not in the kingdom of Messiah. Not in the kingdom of Messiah. It's the wicked he'll put to death. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. And and here's the transformation of nature. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with a young goat. There's going to be not nature ruling by... Uh, ruling as red of tooth and claw with death and destruction everywhere. But verse 8, a nursing baby will play out by the hole hole of a cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So you see, there is the nature of the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist's death will be avenged. Isaiah 26, 21. Yahweh is about to come out from his place to visit the iniquity of the inhabitants of the earth. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover those of hers who were killed. One of those is going to be John the Baptist. That's the kingdom of heaven. So the point is this kingdom is embodied in Jesus Christ. It will be brought in by Jesus Christ. This is my Christian nationalism. Yes, I'd like to see nations converted to Christ and and populated and ruled by people who are Christian, but the only truly Christian nation that there will ever be is going to be this one. And it's going to be brought in by God and by the Son of God, embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you see, when Israel rejected him, they rejected all of this. And in rejecting all of this, they got this. You know, it's like one of those game shows where there's door one and there's door two. And if you say no to door one, you got door two. And this is door two. The kingdom of man is door two. There's only the two doors. And that kingdom is populated by sinners and ruled over by Satan. And it is characterized in that way. There's a vacuum that is actually already occupied by sinners and by Satan And as it is, this is what I want to conclude by saying, as it is with uh, a town or a district or a nation, so it is with each individual. Uh, When somebody doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He He believes in anything. And when he rejects the truth of God, all he's got to choose is error. And that's what we choose when we reject Jesus. So you're thinking perhaps how foolish those Jews were to reject Jesus. Oh, indeed they were. But you see, you and I, we're in one kingdom or the other. There's not a third kingdom. There are only these two kingdoms. And so let me speak to anyone who has not yet repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. And let me ask you, who is it that rules you? Who rules in your kingdom? Jesus is not the king. So who is the king of your kingdom? Is he as wise as Jesus? Is he as good as Jesus? Is he as righteous as Jesus? Is he as powerful as Jesus? Is he as loving and compassionate as Jesus? And I can tell you right now, the answer to that is no, he's not. But I'll add one more. Can he save you from your sins, redeem you, and reconcile you to God? No, he can't. Only Jesus can do these things. 
Only Jesus can be these things. But you might say, well, nobody rules me. I rule myself. To which I say, gotcha. Gotcha. Are you as wise as Jesus? As good as Jesus? As powerful as Jesus? As loving and compassionate as Jesus? Can you save yourself from your sins and reconcile yourself to God? Only Jesus can do these things. And the future belongs to that king. That is the king who will be the king of kings and lord of lords. And of his reign there will be no end. So the question is, the future belongs to that king, but do you belong to that king? If you do belong to that king, rejoice. If you don't belong to that king, repent and call on him for salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word of yours and this brilliant presentation it has made to us of the consequences of rejecting Christ. Sad, sad tale of a lost man, his lost wife, and his lost court doing lost things. What a sad picture it is, but we already know how sad it is the life of the person who walks away from Christ. We pray for anyone today who's come in not knowing Christ, that the Spirit of God will shine a spotlight on that person's need and on Christ's glorious provision, on the glory of his person, and that you will draw that person to saving faith in you. And for the rest of us, Father, we live in these dark days. It's our opportunity to witness and shine in the darkness. We have John for our example. Oh, grant us the clarity and the boldness, the faith, and the fear of God that John had so that we might speak the truth of God as fearlessly and clearly and repeatedly as he did. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?